Section thirty two of Montcalm and Wolfe by Francis Parkman. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter twelve, part three. A brother minister, bearing no likeness to the worthy Graham, appeared on the same spot some time after. This was Chaplain William Crawford of Worcester who, having neglected to bring money to the war, suffered much annoyance aggravated by what he thought a want of due consideration for his person and office. His indignation finds vent in a letter to his townsman, Timothy Payne, member of the general court. No man can reasonably expect that I can with any propriety discharge the duty of a chaplain when i have nothing either to drink nor any conveniency to write a line other than to sit down upon a stump and put a piece of paper upon my knee as for mr weld another chaplain he is easy and silent whatever treatment he meets with and i suppose they ought to find me the same easy and ductile person but may the wide yawning earth devour me first the state of the camp is just such as one at home would guess it to be nothing but a hurry and confusion of vice and wickedness with a stygian atmosphere to breathe in the vice and wickedness of which he complains appear to have consisted in a frequent infraction of the standing order against cursing and swearing, as well as that which required attendance on daily prayers and enjoined the people to appear in a decent manner, clean and shaved at the two Sunday sermons. At the beginning of August, winslow wrote to the committees of the several provinces it looks as if it won't be long before we are fit for a remove that is for an advance on ticonderoga on the twelfth loudon sent webb with the forty fourth regiment and some of bradstreet's boatmen to reinforce oswego they had been ready for a month, but confusion and misunderstanding, arising from the change of command, had prevented their departure. Yet the utmost anxiety had prevailed for the safety of that important post, and on the 28th, Surgeon Thomas Williams wrote, Whether Oswego is yet ours is uncertain would hope it is as the reverse would be such a terrible shock as the country never felt and may be a sad omen of what is coming upon poor sinful new england indeed we can't expect anything but to be severely chastened till we are humbled for our pride and haughtiness his foreboding proved true webb had scarcely reached the great carrying place when tidings of disaster fell upon him like a thunderbolt the french had descended in force upon oswego taken it with all its garrison and as report ran 
were advancing into the province six thousand strong. Wood Creek had just been cleared with great labor of the trees that choked it. Webb ordered others to be felled and thrown into the stream to stop the progress of the enemy. Then, with shameful precipitation, he burned the forts of the carrying place and retreated down the Mohawk to German Flats. Loudon ordered Winslow to think no more of Ticonderoga, but to stay where he was and hold the French in check. All was astonishment and dismay at the sudden blow. Oswego has changed masters, and I think we may justly fear that the whole of our country will soon follow, unless a merciful God prevent and awake a sinful people to repentance and reformation. Thus wrote Dr. Thomas Williams to his wife from the camp at Fort Edward. Such a shocking affair has never found a place in English annals, wrote the surgeon's young relative, Colonel William Williams. The loss is beyond account, but the dishonor done His Majesty's arms is infinitely greater. Since Vaudreuil became chief of the colony, he had nursed the plan of seizing Oswego, yet hesitated to attempt it. Montcalm declares that he confirmed the governor's wavering purpose, but Montcalm himself had hesitated. In July, however, there came exaggerated reports that the English were moving upon Ticonderoga in greatly increased numbers and both Vaudreuil and the general conceived that a feint against Oswego would draw off the strength of the assailants, and, if properly and secretly executed, might even be turned successfully into a real attack. Vaudreuil thereupon recalled Montcalm from Ticonderoga, leaving the post in the keeping of Levis and three thousand men, he embarked on Lake Champlain, rode day and night, and reached Montreal on the 19th. Troops were arriving from Quebec, and Indians from the far west. A band of Menomines from beyond Lake Michigan, naked, painted, plumed, greased, stamping, uttering sharp yelps, shaking feathered lances, brandishing tomahawks danced the war-dance before the governor to the thumping of the indian drum bougainville looked on astonished and thought the pyrrhic dance of the greek montcalm and he left montreal on the twenty first and reached fort frontenac in eight days rigaud brother of the governor had gone thither some time before, and crossed with seven hundred Canadians to the south side of the lake, where Villiers was encamped at Niaura Bay, now Sackett's Harbour, with such of his detachment as war and disease had spared. Rigaud relieved him and took command of the united bands. With their aid, the engineer, de Comble, reconnoitred the English forts and came back with the report that success was certain. 
it was but a confirmation of what had already been learned from deserters and prisoners who declared that the main fort was but a loopholed wall held by six or seven hundred men ill-fed discontented and mutinous others said that they had been driven to desert by the want of good food and that within a year twelve hundred men had died of disease at oswego the battalions of la sarre guyenne and bearn with the colony regulars a body of canadians and about two hundred and fifty indians were destined for the enterprise the whole force was a little above three thousand abundantly supplied with artillery la sarre and goyenne were already at fort frontenac bearn was at niagara whence it arrived in a few days much buffeted by the storms of lake ontario on the fourth of august all was ready montcalm embarked at night with the first division crossed in darkness to wolf island lay there hidden all day and embarking again in the evening joined rigaud at niora bay at seven o'clock in the morning of the sixth the second division followed with provisions hospital train and eighty artillery boats and on the eighth all were united at the bay on the ninth rigaud covered by the universal forest marched in advance to protect the landing of the troops montcalm followed with the first division and coasting the shore in bateau landed at midnight of the tenth within half a league of the first english fort four cannon were planted in battery upon the strand and the men bivouacked by their boats so skilful were the assailants and so careless the assailed that the english knew nothing of their danger till in the morning a reconnoitring canoe discovered the invaders two armed vessels soon came to cannonade them but their light guns were no match for the heavy artillery of the french and they were forced to keep the offing de comble the engineer went before dawn to reconnoitre the fort with several other officers and a party of indians while he was thus employed one of the savages hungry for scalps took him in the gloom for an englishman and shot him dead captain pouchot of the battalion of bearn replaced him and the attack was pushed vigorously the canadians and indians swarming through the forest fired all day on the fort under cover of the trees the second division came up with twenty-two more cannon and at night the first parallel was marked out at a hundred and eighty yards from the rampart stumps were grubbed up fallen trunks shoved aside and a trench dug sheltered by fascines gabions and a strong abatisse fort ontario counted as the best of the three forts at oswego stood on a high plateau at the east or right side of the river where it entered the lake it was in the shape of a star and was formed of trunks of trees set upright in the ground 
hewn flat on two sides and closely fitted together, an excellent defence against musketry or swivels, but worthless against cannon. The garrison, three hundred and seventy in all, were the remnants of Pepperell's regiment, joined to raw recruits lately sent up to fill the places of the sick and the dead. They had eight small cannon and a mortar, with which, on the next day, Friday the 13th, they kept up a brisk fire till towards night, when after growing more rapid for a time it ceased, and the fort showed no sign of life. Not a cannon had yet opened on them from the trenches, but it was certain that with the French artillery once in action, their wooden rampart would be shivered to splinters. Hence it was that Colonel Mercer, commandant at Oswego, thinking it better to lose the fort than to lose both fort and garrison, signalled to them from across the river to abandon their position and join him on the other side. Boats were sent to bring them off, and they passed over unmolested, after spiking their cannon and firing off their ammunition, or throwing it into the well. The fate of Oswego was now sealed. The principal work, called Old Oswego, or Fort Pepperell, stood at the mouth of the river on the west side, nearly opposite Fort Ontario, and less than five hundred yards distant from it. The trading-house, which formed the centre of the place, was built of rough stone laid in clay, and the wall which enclosed it was of the same materials. Both would crumble in an instant at the touch of a twelve-pound shot. Towards the west and south they had been protected by an outer line of earthworks, mounted with cannon and forming an entrenched camp while the side towards Fort Ontario was left wholly exposed. In the rash confidence that this work, standing on the opposite heights, would guard against attack from that quarter, on a hill a fourth of a mile beyond Old Oswego stood the unfinished stockade called New Oswego, Fort George, or by reason of its worthlessness, Fort Rascal. It had served as a cattle pen before the French appeared, but was now occupied by a hundred and fifty Jersey provincials. Old Oswego, with its outwork, was held by Shirley's regiment, chiefly invalids and raw recruits, to whom were now joined the garrison of Fort Ontario and a number of sailors, boatmen, and laborers. Montcalm lost no time. As soon as darkness set in, he began a battery at the brink of the height on which stood the captured fort. His whole force toiled all night, digging, setting gabions, and dragging up cannon, some of which had been taken from Braddock. Before daybreak, twenty heavy pieces had been brought to the spot, and nine were already in position. The work had been so rapid that the English imagined their enemies to number six thousand at least. The battery soon opened fire. Grape and round shot swept the entrenchment and crashed through the rotten masonry. 
The English, says a French officer, were exposed to their shoe-buckles. Their artillery was pointed the wrong way, in expectation of an attack not from the east but from the west. They now made a shelter of pork-barrels, three high and three deep, planted cannon behind them, and returned the French fire with some effect. Early in the morning Montcalm had ordered Rigaud to cross the river with the Canadians and Indians. There was a ford three-quarters of a league above the forts, and here they passed over unopposed, the English not having discovered the movement. The only danger was from the river. Some of the men were forced to swim, others waded to the waist, others to the neck but they all crossed safely and presently showed themselves at the edge of the woods yelling and firing their guns too far for much execution but not too far to discourage the garrison the garrison were already disheartened colonel mercer the soul of the defence had just been cut in two by a cannon shot while directing the gunners up to this time the defenders had behaved with spirit but despair now seized them increased by the screams and entreaties of the women of whom there were more than a hundred in the place there was a council of officers and then the white flag was raised bougainville went to propose terms of capitulation the cries, threats, and hideous howling of our Canadians and Indians, says Vaudreuil, made them quickly decide. This, observes the Reverend Father Claude Godefroy Cocard, reminds me of the fall of Jericho before the shouts of the Israelites. The English surrendered prisoners of war to the number, according to the governor, of sixteen hundred which included the sailors, laborers, and women. The Canadians and Indians broke through all restraint and fell to plundering. There was an opening of rum-barrels and a scene of drunkenness, in which some of the prisoners had their share, while others tried to escape in the confusion and were tomahawked by the excited savages. Many more would have been butchered but for the efforts of Montcalm, who by unstinted promises succeeded in appeasing his ferocious allies, whom he dared not offend. It will cost the king, he says, eight or ten thousand livres in presents. The loss on both sides is variously given. By the most trustworthy accounts, that of the English did not reach fifty killed, and that of the French was still less. In the forts and vessels were found above a hundred pieces of artillery, most of them swivels and other light guns, with a large quantity of powder, shot, and shell. The victors burned the forts and the vessels on the stocks, destroyed such provisions and stores as they could not carry away, and made the place a desert. The priest Piquet, who had joined the expedition, planted amid all the ruin a tall cross, graven with the words, In hoc signo vicunt, 
and near it was set a pole bearing the arms of France, with the inscription, Manibus date lilia plenis. Then the army decamped, loaded with prisoners and spoil, descended to Montreal, hung the captured flags in the churches, and sang Te Deum in honor of their triumph. It was the greatest that the French arms had yet achieved in America. The defeat of Braddock was an Indian victory. This last exploit was the result of bold enterprise and skillful tactics. With its laurels came its fruits. Hated Oswego had been laid in ashes, and the would-be assailants forced to a vain and hopeless defense. France had conquered the undisputed command of Lake Ontario, and her communications with the West were safe. A small garrison at Niagara and another at Frontenac would now hold these posts against any effort that the English could make this year, and the whole French force could concentrate at Ticonderoga, repel the threatened attack, and perhaps retort it by seizing Albany. If the English on the other side had lost a great material advantage, they had lost no less in honor. The news of the surrender was received with indignation in England and in the colonies. Yet the behavior of the garrison was not so discreditable as it seemed. The position was indefensible, and they could have held out at best by a few days more. They yielded too soon, but unless Webb had come to their aid, which was not to be expected, they must have yielded at last. The French had scarcely gone when two English scouts, Thomas Harris and James Connor, came with a party of Indians to the scene of desolation. The ground was strewn with broken casks and bread sodden with rain. The remains of burnt bateaux and whaleboats were scattered along the shore. The great stone trading house in the old fort was a smoking ruin. Fort Rascal was still burning on the neighboring hill. Fort Ontario was a mass of ashes and charred logs, and by it stood two poles on which were written words which the visitors did not understand. They went back to Fort Johnson with their story, and Oswego reverted for a time to the bears, foxes, and wolves. End of section 32